Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today, Matthew chapter 7. Hey, if you're joining us online, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on YouTube, uh, whether it's on uh, the website, thank you for joining us. No matter where you're joining us from, uh, thank you so much for, for doing that. Let us know how we can serve you, how we can pray for you. Uh, the comments section below, again, let us know where you're tuning in from, and thanks so much uh, for doing it again. Let us know how we can serve you, pray for you, love on you uh, during this difficult, difficult time. So here's where we are um, uh, we're going to look today at one of the most uh, misunderstood and yet most recognizable texts in really in all the Bible, all right? Although you ask the average Joe on the street, even if he's never been to church at all, all right, name one verse in the Bible, all right? This is more than likely going to be at least in the top three. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. You, as a matter of fact, if you, uh, if you want to, if you typed in, I typed in Google search and I put, uh, Jesus said not, that's all I put. Jesus said not. And then here's what came up. All right. So uh, Jesus said not, I mean, right there. I mean, not to worship him. I don't know. I'm not sure what that is there. Not to eat pork. Okay. Whatever. But number two was Jesus says what he says, he says not to judge. And Thou shalt not judge is slapped onto everything by everybody, from Oprah to Bill Maher to whoever to a politician. Remember, thou shalt not judge, all right? Remember, you're not the judge and the jury. Um, and so no matter where you are, does that really mean you're never supposed to be discerning or you're never supposed to even evaluate things? Uh, does this passage really mean that? People say, you know, who are you to, who are you to say this or that is wrong? And uh, so we need to kind of figure out what the passage is saying, but also we need to understand what our culture thinks of uh, believers. Because I will just tell you right off the bat, no matter what study I looked at, in the top three of what our culture thinks of Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, they think top three, they think we are definitely judgmental. I give you a bunch of statistics. One person who is not in the faith, but said this about Christians, quote, Christians like to hear themselves talk. They are arrogant about their beliefs, but they never bother figuring out what other people actually think. They don't seem very compassionate, especially when they feel strongly about something. Another, a study said this, nine out of 10 young outsiders, which they said it was actually about 87%, those outside the church said that the term judgmental accurately describes present day Christianity. By the way, one of the other big three is hypocrisy. Uh, one last study said this, and by the way, if you, if you think about it this way, you need to be able to exegete your culture because God has sovereignly put you on mission in a culture. So we exegete the scriptures, obviously that's paramount, but you also exegete your culture. Why? Because you need to understand your culture. And when you look at a statistic like that, what that means in practical term is when you introduce yourself to a 20 something neighbor and you mention your faith, there's an 87% chance they're going to think you right off the bat, they're going to think you're judgmental. And it's not even the people outside the church. It is people inside the church. Last study. Half of the young Christians between the ages of 16 and 29 said they believed that the label judgmental accurately describes present day Christianity. All right, so what is it? I mean, obviously the Lord invites us into flourishing and he says, thou shalt not judge. But on the other hand, I mean, does it really mean that? Does it really mean we're just supposed to be like kind of weak toast, milk toast, no backbone, no conviction? Because we started off, yeah, love must be greater than hate. But then last week we talked about that conviction, you know, 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, conviction has got to be greater than compromise. And so today we're actually going to be looking at the fact that authenticity must be greater than hypocrisy. So I'm going to read five verses. We'll do a little work on the front end and uh, point out a couple. And then we're going to actually, how does this download into life? Here's what he says. Matthew chapter seven, verse one, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I know that can be confusing. We're going to come back to that. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Which real quickly, I don't know if this is humor or if this is hyperbole or a combination of both. But just so you know, the word speck here is the Greek word for like a little tiny little splinter. It's real. It's legitimate. It's just real, real small. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And here's the hyperbole or the humor, but do not notice the log, different word than speck. Log is like a beam. It's like a telephone pole. It is like this massive thing sticking out of your eye while you're trying to get the splinter out of somebody else's eye. Verse four, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck, the splinter out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? And here's really, really the meat of the Sermon on the Mount as well as this passage. You hypocrite, first, protos, first, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I was like, man, what what, what does this mean? And so one of the first things I do is I... When I take a passage, I actually look up the words to try to figure out, is there a picture here? Is there a meaning here that I'm not catching? And really it didn't help that much when I looked up what judge means. Judge is where we get our word critic from. It just simply means to discern or to separate. It's a word they use for ancient judges that basically says, give me all the facts and then I will separate the facts from fiction. Then I will make a judgment from that. Well, that didn't help me a whole lot, especially now that we live in a culture where everybody's a critic, correct? I mean, everybody's a critic. Our culture leans into that. Just think about everything from reviews on restaurants to uh, what star rating are you giving a movie? What, you know, how many Pinocchios does somebody have? Whatever that is, comments, tweets, ratings, customer reviews. I mean, you used to have to be an expert. You have to be like an expert to be able to rate a restaurant, man. Now any of us, I mean, we can go in there and rate a restaurant and you can't even cook a hamburger. And you can say, you know what? Here's my rating. And you have no idea what a restaurant does or takes in. Um, you can rate uh, a, a, a school board. You can rate a, uh, the haircut of some celebrity. Well, I don't like his haircut. Who cares? You can, you can, uh, you can, you can, you can actually rate churches. You can rate churches. You can rate People rate the exegetical skills of a student pastor. It's like, well, he didn't get this right. I mean, that's what we do. We are raters. So the question is, what does this mean and what does this not mean? So before you're like, all right, are we going soft? Let me tell you what it does not mean. Real quickly, let me just you three things it does not mean. Thou shalt not judge or do not judge. It does not mean that you and I are supposed to have no evaluative processes at all doesn't mean you're supposed to be gullible. That means that you're not supposed to have any discernment. That's not at all what it means. You're like, well, how how do you know that? Well, this is in a section of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he actually encourages discernment and practices discernment. 
One example, a few verses later in verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. So he's making a discerning thing. He's like, hey, you be careful because there are false teachers in sheep's clothing and you need to be able to discern which is which. Verse six, right after this, I almost was going to get to it, but I'm like, ah, we don't have time to do it. He actually calls people pigs and dogs. He could. I mean, I guess it could have been worse, pigs and cats, but he said pigs and dogs is what he called actual people. That is, a, that is obviously discerning something about those people. Here's the second thing it cannot mean. It cannot mean never confronting people, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them about to go off the rails. It can't mean that. Can't mean that because of what the whole Bible teaches about community and fellowship and accountability and actual biblical love. But again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends his whole ministry telling people in many cases, listen, you're wrong. You're just, you're just wrong. A few verses later, he says, listen, wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many enter into it. Narrow is the gate that leads to life and few find it. So he's telling them, listen, you're going down the wrong way. And Christ followers throughout history and throughout the Bible have said, listen, I've got a backbone. This is right. This is wrong. This is what God's word says. I mean, for example, John the Baptist, he got beheaded because he stood up and said, listen, that's sexual sin. The apostle Paul in the, to the Corinthians, he's like, listen, you guys are celebrating all this cheap grace. You're celebrating the fact that morality has gone out the door and you guys are just reveling in cheap grace. It's like, listen, discipline that guy. He's sleeping, he's, I mean, it's, it's incest. He's, deal with that. So it's not the fact you never confront somebody. And then thirdly, it's not this, all right? It's not lessening the character of God. When you say thou shalt not, it's not lessening the character of God. It's not like, you know what? We're all gonna talk about just the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. The Bible teaches us to teach the whole thing, the love of God and the wrath of God, okay? The grace of God and the justice of God, all of those. So it doesn't mean that you lessen who God is, doesn't mean you and I go to snuggy theology and never talk about the difficult parts of the Bible. So what does it mean? What does it mean? I'll give you two things tonight. First of all, when it says thou shalt not judge, it means you don't reject the person I'm gonna, you're like, how are you getting, you don't reject the person. Let me show you how this is. Now, verse two, I said was a little confusing. So here's verse two. Verse two says, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you or back to you. So just right off the bat, if somebody were to say, how do you wanna be judged? It would probably use words like patience and mercy and kindness. And actually that's what the Bible says. The Bible says, you know what? God led you to repentance through his kindness. But one of the things you can do when there's an unclear verse in the Bible, now here's, a, here's just a little Bible study tip for you. When there's a verse that's unclear, verse two is like, oh, what exactly is he meaning? One of the best things you can do is make sure you let the Bible be, a, instead of going and looking who four different people say it means, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Let me say it again. The Bible, let the Bible be the commentary on the Bible. If there's an unclear passage, use a clear passage to shed light on an unclear passage. So here's a way that that can work super easy. In this case, we're in a section called the Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Big chunk, all right? Big chunk, most detailed section of a sermon Jesus preached. Luke also has a shorter version 
of the Sermon on the Mount with many of the exact same things, but some of the things that are not recorded in Matthew. You're like, how does that even work? Quick little rabbit chase here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what they call synoptic gospels, which means you're going to see a lot of overlap when it comes to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, meaning you're going to see some of the same stories. You're going to see some of the same episodes, some of the same parables. You will see, John's kind of different. He has a different audience, more different, not different theology, but a different aim with this theology. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptics. So what that means is there are some what they call parallel passages, passages like In Luke, Luke chapter six is also the Sermon on the Mount. Don't turn to it, but uh, but listen to it. I'll tell you what, here's here's one we've used. Think of it like this. When you think about parallel passages, think of it like, uh, like, like the highlights of a football game. When you think of the highlights of a football game, let's say you watch, uh, or a basketball game or anything. So let's say uh, UNC and Duke play. UNC and Duke play. And then you're like, that was an awesome game. I want to watch the highlights. And so if you go to, let's say, ESPN and watch the highlights of Duke Carolina, they're going to show you a certain highlight package. But if you go over to, let's say, Fox Sports or local news or whatever, they're going to be showing you the same game, but they're going to be different highlights that they are oftentimes going to show. And so what Luke does is Luke gives some commentary in a couple of things that you don't see in Matthew. Here's one that sheds light on this passage. Don't turn to it, just listen to it. Luke 6, 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Same thing we saw. But then you hear, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So what he's saying is there's a little commentary on what judge not lest you be judged. And one of the words that he uses there that is super, super insightful is the idea of condemnation. John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here, check it out. Even though Jesus told some people their works were evil and It was clear they're not gonna get to heaven except through the narrow gate. It says he did not condemn the world. So take that out. Obviously then, obviously you can see that not condemning does not equal not telling the truth. See what I'm saying? It can't mean that because Jesus did not condemn the world and he told people the truth. What we do after we tell people the truth oftentimes shows are we judging the person? Do you reject the person? If you're a Christ follower, after Jesus told you the truth about your sin, what did he do? When he told you about your sin, did he then distance himself? The Bible says he actually brought you in as a friend, as an adopted son or daughter. Let me give you a great example of how this works. One of the most famous episodes where Jesus is dealing with both sin and judgment is John chapter eight. Famous story. This is a story where the woman caught in adultery gets dragged in front of everybody and thrown in front of Jesus. And the whole thing is, you know, it's a tons of lessons in there, including the fact that, all right, they probably broke who knows how many laws actually trying to peek in on a woman committing adultery, drug her out, threw her in front of Jesus and said, hey, the law says that a woman like this, you should stone her. What do you say? The text says that they were doing this to test Jesus because they were trying to get in between the proverbial rock and a hard place. All right. The law says this. 
The law says this, oh, what do you say? Because if you go against the law, you're in trouble. Or if you just kind of blow it off, then how are you a moral teacher? All that being said, here's what he says. He says, neither, this is, neither do I condemn you. That's called grace. Comma, go and sin no more. That's called truth. Say again. They threw her in front. Remember he wrote down on some stuff and nobody knows what he writes down. People guess. If somebody says, I know what he wrote down, run, run away, all right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That guy is, he's, it's not there, all right? And if God wanted us to know what he wrote down, he would have told us what he wrote down. We don't know what he wrote down. But what we do know he said is, listen, he says, who's here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more which is actually another great story, a great picture of, I don't condemn you, that's identity, go and sin no more, that's activity. And that's what you see throughout the Bible, that's what we talk about all the time. When your identity changes, then your activity changes. In this case, this was grace and then go and sin no more, that's truth. Uh, I'm personally, I'm, in, I'm going through the book of John, uh, personally and devotionally. I was in chapter two this morning about uh, uh, you know wedding at Cana and the first miracle and all that. But John chapter one could be at least my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Because in John chapter one, you know, it's like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then it skips over a little bit. You go to like verse five and it's like, you know, and the darkness could not overcome and it's so encouraging. But probably the favorite verse in the favorite chapter is the 14th verse where it says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's like Christmas, right? But then it says, and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. But you remember what he says right at the end? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. All truth, all truth and no grace is brutality. All, all truth and no grace brutality. All grace and no truth is sentimentality. It's just, eh. Grace and truth, that's the gospel. And loved ones, I just got to be able to tell you, we can be judgmental and not even know we're being that way. Let me give you a testimony. Uh, most of you or many of you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't grow up in church, so I became a Christian as a senior in high school. And when I, be, when I became a Christian, uh, I came, you know, my three brothers, coach, uh, when, when I came to Christ, I'm not trying to put you down. I mean, like I really changed, I mean, I really, really changed, really changed. I went off to school. I graduated as a 17 year old and went off to school and, uh, got discipled pretty heavily. And, and, you know, when I got discipled, man, they discipled me on like, read your Bible, pray and share your faith. And that is what I did. I mean, I really did. I would share, as a matter of fact, it, uh, a few weeks ago, I saw a guy, it was so, it was so affirming. I saw a guy that uh, was probably two years younger than me. It says, I don't know if you remember this, but when I came to your house, I, it, it was like my junior year. When I came to your house uh, to do such and such, you shared the gospel with me. He said, I was already a believer, but it stained me that here was a, here was a junior in college when everything is going just you know, hog wild and you share the gospel with me. I say that to say this, listen, when God changed me, God, God really changed me, man. I started doing Bible studies, leading Bible studies, went to spring break. They took us to spring break. 
said, hey, go, you know, down at Padre Island, go, go share your faith at Padre Island. You know, God, people are just wasted out of their mind. You go up to a drunk person, which you can make them pray anything, but you, you're, at least you're going to share, share the gospel with them. Um, I stopped drinking, I stopped partying, I got called to the ministry, uh, went to seminary. I remember sitting at seminary. I started in uh, May, I got a few classes, so eager to do it. Once I had my kind of money together, I went to start in May. And, uh, you know, most people don't go to summer school at seminary. And so I was one of the few people in the dorm. And I, I was thinking, reflecting this week, I remember my heart at that time was so tender. I remember sitting up in the balcony uh, overlooking, you know, a Texas summer and just, and just like taking a hymn book and singing, um, what is that? Uh, there is a fountain, you know, filled with blood drawn from, and crying. And I hadn't cried in years. And just crying just because it was so fresh and so new and it was, it was just, it was, it was so awesome. But I, what I say that for is over time, here's what I noticed is I went to seminary, took all the classes, did all the Greek, did all the Hebrews, started working at a church, all this kind of stuff. And there, and I didn't plan on doing it, didn't mean to do it. But what happened is there was a shift that took place and my heart shifted from doing life with God to doing things for God. It shifted. I didn't see it happening. It's not like you took a class in hard-heartedness 101. But what happened is I, I went from a heart that was so tender you would cry while singing by yourself on a balcony to doing stuff for God. And what I did is I started losing intimacy and it started to be all about my behavior, particularly my outward behavior. And as, here's, here's what happened. As my knowledge increased and as my competency increased, listen to me because this, this happens... This happens all the time. As my knowledge and as my competency increased, so did my judgment. I didn't mean to become a Pharisee. It just happened. I would actually walk into a room and critique people right there. I would, I would, judge, even, I would judge believers. I would critique every person that I actually encountered. I mean, if they didn't have the same self-discipline if they didn't have the same zeal, if they weren't sharing their faith, if they weren't getting up early to study their Bible, man, I would just, I would routinely write them off. And to my shame, a few, you know, years into our marriage, my wife tells me, I feel condemned around you. I can't, I probably argued with her. That's a prop. No, you don't. I mean, that's how stubborn and, and I'm still a recovering Pharisee, but that at least began the process of breaking me of some of the self-righteousness that I had. That's what, that's what judging is. We do it to our culture as well. We look at people who don't know Jesus and act, act like they should act like people who know Jesus. We rate them. That's a one star. That person's overweight. They must be lazy. That person's in debt. They must be impulsive. That person is divorced. They must have, have rejected their family. That's a big church that must be shallow. That's a small church. They must not like evangelism. And you and I are judging when we write people off. Yes, stand our ground against sin. Yes, reject sinful actions and attitudes. But there's got to be, a, listen, there's got to be a continued determination to look beyond the issues and see people themselves. 
There's gotta be. Right out in the margin of your notes, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James chapter two, verse 13, it says this, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is not softness, this is not compromise, it's the fact that judgment sees the issue, mercy sees the person. I'm saying again, judgment, you see the issue, you see the caricature, we see the stereotype, we group them together, that's judgment. Mercy sees beyond the stereotype and actually sees the person. So don't reject the person. The main thing he's trying to do in this passage though is actually this. He's saying, don't reject the person, but do repent on a personal basis. Now verse three, I explained earlier, he talks about a, 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 a speck, which is a little splinter, a log, which is this big pole. <laughs> and uh, he's basically, he says like, you don't even notice he says, you don't notice that you have this log in your eye. I mean, how, how obtuse, how crazy would it have to be to say, I don't even notice this. I don't even notice the two by four while I'm doing eye surgery on somebody else. That's how humorous it is. He says, you don't even notice that. But then verse five, he kind of tells us why, because he says, you, you hypocrite. A hypocrite, the word he used was actually used back then for actors or actresses. They didn't have the makeup we have now. So what they would do back then is they would put these different masks on to be able to say, you know what, I want to pretend to be this person. And so it even became a compliment. If you could say, you know what, I can put a mask on and convince you I'm this person when really I'm not this person, I'm this person. Then they would say, you're a hypocrite. And for a while there, it was a compliment. It's like, you're a great actor. You're a great actress. And yet Jesus uses it and says, you know what, um, you're a hypocrite. It's the main thing he had against it's the main thing he had against the religious leaders. Now listen to me. I understand that is the second biggest thing that people throw out against the church. I don't believe the church is full of hypocrites, to be honest. I don't. I, if you understand what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is not failing, all right? That's just called humanity, okay? Hypocrisy is not just that there's a gap between who I am and who people think I am. Hypocrisy is not only that there's a gap, but it's that I'm comfortable with the gap and I'm okay if the gap is even growing and I'm not gonna do anything to close that gap. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, you know, it's sometimes it's super easy to see, right? I mean, sometimes you're like, that's almost stereotypical. You, uh, it's the guy who, who uh, teaches the connect group lesson on tithing and then is caught cheating on his income tax. You're like, that's hypocrisy, okay? I remember early, you know, back in the day, it's like the guy that's like, uh, you know, just, I'm probably gonna get in trouble, but whatever. It's like the ones that would condemn a person for let's say smoking a cigar. You know, your body's the temple of God. And they're like 200 pounds overweight. And you're like, really? It's like, take the Snickers out of your own eye and <laughs> before you see the leaf in another person's mouth, all right? Something like that, that's a paraphrase. But bottom line is you're like, that doesn't make sense. You're missing this and you're seeing this. That's hypocrisy. But let me be clear, it's gotta be, it's more than that. I think what you're also trying to see is trying to drive down and help us understand that deep in all of our DNAs is we have to understand the depravity of our own heart. 
Again, nobody's entirely exempt from hypocrisy. Nobody's entirely exempt from that inconsistency. Uh, we all have them because nobody has arrived. Uh, what again, where bondage occurs is when we're comfortable with the inconsistency and we don't mind it growing. As a matter of fact, if you look at the text, you're gonna see that if there is a lifetime of hypocrisy, a lifetime of hypocrisy, then there's every reason to question the validity of your faith to begin with. So if it's not blatant hypocrisy, it's also, I think, just about the sinful DNA, our understanding of, of the gospel. Here's a little church doctrine. Doesn't matter where you are in the whole soteriology deal, doesn't matter, Calvinist, Arminian, whatever, but the Bible's really clear that we have a depraved heart, correct? Okay, if you don't know that, um, you need to know that. That has nothing to do, again, about how you see soteriology. It has everything to do just with the Bible. For example, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Romans chapter seven, the apostle Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. Just part of that is just acknowledging that, you know what, I think it's John Owen, the old Puritan writer, he said, he said the seed, he said the seed of every sin, the seed of every sin is in every heart. Bible just says our heart is like that polluted well. It's not that you don't have some good things in there, but it's just polluted. So you bring up water and it's like, well, that's, you know, that's 60% pure, 60% pure. It's 40% filth, but it's 60% pure. You're still not gonna drink it, okay? That's what he's saying. It's a depraved heart. Like, I don't like to be talked to like that. That's because you have a depraved heart, okay? That's because there's pride there. I don't like to be talked like that anyway, but the DNA is I have got that in me. Bonhoeffer, uh, who this series kind of revolved around a saying of his, he had a great insight into this. He said this, one of the first signs of Christian maturity is the frustration with the hypocrisy of the church and the desire to separate from it. So let me, uh, there's a second point too. His first point, he says, the first sign or one of the first signs of Christian maturity is a frustration with the hypocrisy of the church and a desire to separate from it. So what does that look like? It means when you're like new and you're growing, and I remember I had so much zeal and so little knowledge and I would go to church as a brand new believer and look around and it's like, man, these people are hypocrites, man. They're not doing this, they're not doing that. And I'm so frustrated with them. But here's the second point he makes, and this is the point that the journey will take you on. He said, he said but the next sign of growth is to recognize that the same hypocrisy that we are repelled by in the church is present in us. It's present in us. He went on to say, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled as we are. I mean, isn't it confusing that the fact when we get drilled down the gospel, as I said, as I said last week, people who are like so strong, they come across arrogant. It's not because they believe the message of the gospel too strongly. It's because they don't believe the message of the gospel strong enough. I mean, how weird is it that the gospel message is about a son of God who died for our rebellion on a cross? The last thing that ought to do is make a Christian arrogant. So here's the deal. You're like, well, what are we supposed to do then? Underline this one word and uh, then we'll pray. He says, he gets to verse five and then he says, first, first, verse four, first take the log out and then you will see clearly. I would just say, I mean, I've known this passage for a long time and I've never really 
taken notice of, if you do this, then you will see clearly. The idea is until you do that, you don't see clearly. But then when you and I repent, God search my heart, then we're able to actually see clearly. Then we're actually, maybe to see actually differently. So let's just get down to where, where it is. Um, when you see uh, and deal with your sexual brokenness, it could be lust for a girl that walks by, it could be any number of things. When you deal with that and repent from that, then we are less likely to be making comments of disgust about cultural, ab- cultural going away from what God's word says. Not saying it's not wrong. I'm just saying we say it with a different attitude. We don't say it with disgust like, I can't believe those people. You know why? Because you understand you broken inside and God gave you grace. Again, don't write me and say we're compromising. We're not compromising at all. What we're doing, it's not about what you say. It's really in, in some ways about, I'll put it this way. If you're never broken, if you're never broken over the sin of somebody else out there in culture, you name it. If you're never broken over the sin out there, there is a high likelihood you have never been broken over your own sin. If you look out there and all you think is, you know, those people out there and you're not broken over the bondage and the the abject tyranny of what sin does to a person, if that doesn't break you, there's a huge chance you've never been broken over your own sin. And so you just kind of go down the list. When you see and deal with maybe your lack of compassion for poor people or uh, your lack of generosity, the average Christian's like 3%. When you deal with the lack of generosity, you're, we're less likely to look at other people and, as lazy. When we see sin in the mirror, we're less likely to just, you know, our culture's going to hell. You know what? It is, but so are we, and we got rescued. And when we look at our culture as the mission field and not the enemy, the whole thing changes. So here's what that means. Uh, when you've dealt with the big things in your life and have been honest about it before the Lord, your tone is going to be so different as we talk to someone about how he needs to grow or how she needs to grow. So, and that's what verse five says, then you will be able to do it. Then, when, when you've dealt with your own stuff. The last thing I said I was going to close, but last thing. This is not about leaving people alone, particularly your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's not. First Corinthians five does say we judge each other differently than we judge the world. You understand that? I mean, we ought to have a higher expectation for each other. So it's not about leaving people alone. It's about getting in the right place in our own lives so that we actually can do something about it in a healthy manner. Judge not does not mean care not. Judge not does not mean speak not. As a matter of fact, if it's a critical issue and not in a harsh way, you don't sit on your hands and watch them burn. You don't. You don't sit in your connect group and watch a marriage disintegrate and then talk about it later on. You don't see somebody who is like so away from the Lord and go, well, you know, bless, bless his heart, bless his heart. That's Southern for I don't give and I'll stop. That's what it means. Bless his heart. Just means bless his heart. So um, 
Let me just kind of end on that. I would just say this. I would say there's a good chance that a lot of us, uh, has, you've been confronted recently. Somebody's confronted you. You knew they were right. You didn't want to listen to them. I just want to remind you that they're loving you. And if you don't listen to them, talking about good counsel, godly counsel who cares about your soul, you know they're right and you're just offensive. If you, if you don't listen to them, all you're going to do, you're just guaranteeing you're going to make the same mistakes in the future that you're making right now. That's all you're doing. So let me pray for us all. And why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. And your first prayer is just for yourself. My guess is that God has brought up something that you need to deal with personally. I mean, I shared my journey as clearly as I could. It's not that the journey is over. As I said, I am recovering. I lean toward judgment. I've judged some of you. But what I pray to God we don't do is dismiss people, reject people, lack patience with people, give up on people. So Father, what our prayer is, we are grateful today. You didn't give up on us. We're grateful today you told us the truth about who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were at enmity. We were by nature children of wrath, the Bible says. But you didn't walk away. You brought us close. By grace, we were saved through faith. God, I pray you'd help us to see people the way you see people. Whether they're in our home, whether they're our children, whether they're our spouse, whether they're our neighbor, whether they're our community, whether they're our country, whatever it is, can help us to just see them like you see them. Help us to have a backbone of steel and a heart like Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.